This is Trice Brown, multimedia editor for The Plainsman. Think of a professor you've had so far. It could be your favorite or the one you just came from. What comes to mind? Their mannerisms? The workload of the class? It's important to remember our perceptions of professors is warped. Through word of mouth and sites like Rate My Professor, we've commodified them. When we go to pick our classes, we check to see which professors give less busy work or teach the class in ways we prefer. We forget about the years, sometimes decades of experience and education that have led them here, and we forget about the things that they do beyond lectures and office hours. This week for Sweet 1111, Collins, Keith, and I talked with two professors about some of these things. Stay with us. Hey, this is Miley, podcast editor for the Auburn Plainsman. If you like this podcast and would like to support this organization and our team, you can visit our website at theplainsman.com and click on the button in the upper right-hand corner that says Donate. You'll be supporting over 127 years of local, editorially independent journalism right here in Auburn. Thank you so much in advance. Now back to the show. Mei Ling McNamara is a professor in the journalism department. She's also a documentary journalist for The Guardian, where she makes investigations focusing on human rights as well as criminal and social issues. But when she first started, she was just a college student at UC Davis, looking to meet new and interesting people to find her people, which she found in a midnight to 3 a.m. college radio show. And I was hooked, completely hooked. Not only hooked because it was a lot of fun and, you know, you could go off script and you could play, you know, talk and play music and, and chat about whatever. But at the same time, you could reach out to people who were listening at that time and you could, you know, like listen to the community, you know, someone's listening in Sacramento for, for, about me, you know, and what we're playing. But then I also got to meet so many different students from so many walks of life and backgrounds, diversity of ideas and mm-hmm. ethnicities and beliefs. And it was amazing. So Dr. McNamara said she's always been a traveler ever since she was a kid. She studied abroad in the UK to finish her undergraduate degree and soon got her master's there as well, while still doing college radio. She lived in Egypt for a while on a shoestring budget, then taught English as a second language in Morocco. It wasn't the most fulfilling job for her, but when it was over, she still wanted to go back to Africa and began looking for organizations that would pay for her to live there, which led to her living in Madagascar for a number of years. They found out that I did radio and they were basically launching um, this community radio. They've been launching this project radio project in, in Madagascar because the, uh, the literacy rate was so low. I mean, it was like 99 percent you know, illiteracy there. But but the reality is that people focus on the oral uh, oral learning and transmission of oral information was high. So mm-hmm. for somebody here who may listen and not retain as much information, it's very different there. Um, storytelling orally is, is you know, the, the pre-literate societies is very strong there. So what they found was that, you know, making radio programs and, and uh, about what people want to hear, right? So whether it was health, whether it was farming techniques, whether it was um, education, uh, people were really interested in knowing about. And I was tasked uh, with entering in this project to do a big uh, project on HIV AIDS in the in the country. And so I worked with villagers, radio stations, NGOs, and our own kind of team to develop stories. Uh, we, we, we worked with local villages to do dramas, radio plays, um, uh, poetry, singing, you know, all sorts of things. I didn't, I didn't make up the songs. They were local songs and local dialects. Mm-hmm. But we looked at key messages and we worked with them on that. And they were able then to reach 
um, you know, millions of people uh, across the south of Madagascar with this, and then later developed this as their own radio model for the whole country, which is the fourth largest island in the world. So it's big, you know. Um, and so it was really more or less a radio for development rather than, you know, that kind of thing. It was here that Dr. McNamara began considering the potential of visual storytelling. Madagascar is one of the poorest countries in Africa, and a lot of its problems involve general human rights issues, people being able to own their own land, to eat, to have health care. She thought her writing would be best served if it went to address these issues. So, she went back to the UK to get a master's degree in journalism, ending up working for Al Jazeera English doing documentary investigations, where she had to produce, report, do basically everything besides hold the camera for stories that she had to turn around in about three weeks. Her experience in the world, like everyone, influenced the things she wrote about, including stories about the environmental impacts of mines in post-coup Madagascar and the pollution caused by the 2012 Olympics, which were supposed to be the most environmentally friendly games ever. You know, at the time, I found out that young Vietnamese uh, children were being it trafficked into the UK to grow cannabis in these grow-ups, in these homes. Um, mm -hmm. But worse than that, once they were found, they were being tried as adults in the UK court system. So nobody had ever had anybody on camera about this. One print journalist had kind of mentioned some of this, but I had doing some of my own research about the story. Uh, they weren't talking about them being prosecuted, it was more that they were being found, uh, these Vietnamese mm -hmm. Uh, young people. So I actually found a young man who was willing to go on camera anonymously. And I blew this story open for, and really took the UK government to task on that. Um, and that ended up being used a lot for a lot of different legislation and things that they wanted to discuss. So the children of the cannabis trade was a big one. She had some stories take months or even years as she found and developed trust with sources. When she decided to go into academia and to get her PhD, it gave her the ability to let stories simmer so she didn't have to turn them around as quickly. As a professor and a journalist, she was able to teach about the skills she was using herself, like building trust and making sure that her sources knew what they were consenting to. While she was working on a story about incarcerated women in the United States being trafficked for sex work, she shared the raw footage with students in her documentary journalism classes. Um, I mean, I knew they weren't gonna run with it and make the story, right? Because it's like the hard, it was like the hardest story to make. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, you know, I wasn't kind of going, this is the exact story. Go take this and run with it. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it, it was snippets of documentary, for example. So I would come back and, you know, I would get a bunch of raw footage uh, from the camera person I was working with. And we would review this. We would start writing some different script and things like that. And I was teaching a documentary class at the time on social issues. So I would show, you know, different uh, clips and and ask their opinions about it. We would talk about it and they would say, how did you get into that prison? How did that happen? What was the process? Um, how did you interview this person? Um, what was it like for them? How did they talk to you and open up that way? So then we just would talk about these things because it's it's very all very well to, to see a finished product that's looking really clean and really sharp, but it's a little different when you see the raw footage and you mm -hmm. have to kind of, you have a lot of questions uh, that that students might want to, you know, need answers to. Dr. Sushil Adhikari of Biosystems Engineering is one of the most prolific research professors out there. In his time at Auburn, which began in 2008, he has authored papers that have received over $28 million in total in extramural funding, 
and has co-authored 90 peer-reviewed publications. Since 2016 alone, Dr. Adhikari's work has been cited over 5,700 times. He was also named the director for the Center of Bioenergy and Bioproducts at Auburn in late 2017. Being such an accomplished researcher, I expected Dr. Adhikari to say that he had dreamed of getting his PhD since the moment he began school in Nepal, but that wasn't exactly the case. So, you know, it's kind of funny that, uh, that you know, you ask me that question, and I, I, I wonder sometimes whether, did I really know whether I wanted to be a PhD? The answer is no. Uh, you know, when, when I finished my undergraduate degree, I knew that, you know, either I wanted to go to med school or maybe engineering. And so uh, in Nepal, it's a slightly different education system. So when you are at uh, 11 or 12, you decide which track you wanted to go. Uh, if you wanted to go to medical school, you have to take a lot of biological classes. And if you want to go into more in engineering, you'd probably take more physics and math class. And so I, at that time I decided, uh, you know, that I wanted to be an engineer. And so when I, you know, uh, get into the engineering program and, and, you know, it was a four year program there as well. And so after I, you know, I was going to graduate find a job and just work, you know, and then retire probably. Uh, but then what happened was when I started working, I feel like I was not challenged much, you know, and then I got bored and then I still get bored sometimes when I have to do kind of the same thing over and over. And so maybe I wanted to, you know, uh, do a master's or something like that. And, and then I went to Thailand uh, to do a master's. And I said, okay, maybe master is enough and, and I just want to work. And I started working and then I felt like, okay, I needed a PhD. You know? and so, so it just, it was never planned, you know, to do the PhD, but as I started working, you know, I just, just happened that mm-hmm. way. So maybe it's the need to keep the mundaneness away that drives Dr. Adhikari to continue to delve deeper into his research and continue to discover new processes. Being the director for the Center of Bioenergy and Bioproducts, Dr. Adhikari focuses on researching ways to convert waste into usable fuel, and one of his favorite projects was about just that. I, I think, you know, I'll say maybe two things that, that are kind of, you know, you know favorite. Uh, you know, one on the research side, you know, we get to uh, different things, right? So we, uh, I, I was working on converting biomass, like a pine trees and things like that. Uh, to convert into uh, gasoline or a diesel type of fuel. Uh, so, so that's always exciting. Now, you know, we are working on converting sludge uh, uh, from wastewater treatment plant into uh, liquid fuels. And I work with, you know, a lot of uh, faculty in chemical engineering, uh, Maria Watt, uh, you know, in, in, in particularly to take some of the uh, crude uh, oil that we make from the sludge, see we take it and, you know, convert into uh, adhesives like making polyurethanes and things like that, and so so that, that that's kind of been exciting. We just got a funded from a de- Department of Energy on taking uh, MSW municipal solid waste plastics and things like that to produce hydrogen energy you know, from that. And so there's always been something new that that is coming from the research side. On the teaching side, is you know even though I'm teaching the same course every year, you know, and and so maybe that is kind of mundane part, but the students that come through, you know, they they have a different personality, they have, a, you know, a different sense of humor, uh, and so it's always good to know different people and, and build that relationship for several years, you know, down the road, I think. 
Part of the reason Dr. Adhikari's work is so important is because it is hoping to provide some answers to the dark, ominous cloud that's looming over the world's head, climate change. Biosystems engineering as a whole is all about answering these large societal questions like, how do we safely and efficiently provide clean water to remote villages, or how do we reduce our carbon footprint? The specific answers that Dr. Adhikari focuses on are those related to producing energy from byproducts, like the sludge he spoke about recycling from wastewater treatment plants. And he hopes that bioenergy from byproducts could be part of that solution. So I guess, they, you know, one of the things is right now there's a heavy focus on climate change, right? So the amount of carbon dioxide, the greenhouse gas emission, uh, greenhouse gases that we emit, uh, there are a number of studies saying that uh, if, you, if we don't reduce the, uh, you know, greenhouse gas emissions, uh, the, the global temperature rise could be higher than, uh, you know, 1.5 degrees centigrade. And so that's going to be uh, catastrophic uh, because what we're going to see and, and what we have been observing is extreme weather events, you know, whether it could be wildfires in the West Coast, whether it could be heavy precipitation or maybe more, uh, you know, storms coming through. And, and so that's probably going to be more frequent and, and more intense, more frequent and things like that. So it is very important for us to find out ways to uh, move, you know, away from fossil-based sources, energy. Uh, and so, you know, biomass or bioenergy, bioproducts could be the part of that solution. One of the hard things about researching in these areas is that the funding that is necessary, oftentimes from the government, is highly variable on policy and the current administration, as well as public opinion. In 2008, when the price of gasoline shot up to around $4 per gallon during the recession, people started to turn to other ways to produce liquid fuel, which helped fund Dr. Adhikari's work. But when the oil prices went back down, the interest in his research went away, and that impacted his funding. And it's often frustrating. Yeah, I think uh, that impacts your program, right? So if your your funding is going to come uh, from certain agencies, and if their focus is keep changing it, uh, it's very difficult, right? So every three four years, you are switching your gears, and then maybe trying to find, you know, what 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 you wanted to research on, because at the end of the day, you need to have funding to do the research, right? So it's it's very difficult. In the other sense, you know, it is actually difficult for us to even sometimes compete with other countries, you know, in terms of the technology-wise. As a think as an athlete, right, uh, you were, you know, if you wanted to compete, you know, for a, for a track or, you know, any sports, you would keep practicing, you know, uh, for that sport. But then you say, okay, I'm not going to practice it. And then suddenly when there's a final tomorrow, and if you start practicing today, you're not going to give your best performance. And so that's what's happening with us. You know, we work on a certain technology and then the funding dies down. Uh, you kind of stop working on that one. And after four or five years, it's like reinventing the wheel, right? So a lot of knowledge uh, would evaporate or disperse and people would move in different places and things like that. So I think it's, it's somewhat, uh, you know, disappointing in, in that way. Uh, right now, you know, Biden administration has put a lot of focus on climate change. But you never know, you know, next year, you know, when, when there's going to be, you know, there's an election next year. So if the Democrat uh, lose some seats in the Senate and, you know, and, and House, 
he might not be able to do anything, right? And 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 so so that that's why it's kind of frustrating that uh, you know one one administration comes and make a commitment. I don't know whether you have heard about Paris Climate Accord. Uh, oh, you know, mm-hmm. and so you know, President Obama, you know, signed it and made a commitment. When President Trump came in, you know, he pulled out, and then you know, Biden came in, you know, he rejoined it, and so he's just, uh, you know, he's just dancing around. And uh, I have, you know, experience working with a lot of companies, and so a lot of companies left this, uh, you know, field uh, because they didn't really see the path forward, uh, and you know, those companies were there. You know, trying to make money, unfortunately, uh, they wanted to see the long-term commitment from the governments and things like that, and so so they they have quit, you know, working on the bioenergy and things. So which was unfortunate. From the Auburn Plainsman, this has been Sweet Eleven Eleven. Starting next week on the podcast, things are going to look a lot different. We won't be creating audio-specific stories anymore, but we're going to highlight the many amazing stories Plainsman writers and reporters are making every week. I'm Trice Brown, signing off, and I'll see you next week.